Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Welcome to church. How's everybody doing? All right, open your Bibles to uh, Colossians 1.9, and we're going to read verses 9 through 14 together. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, you can follow along uh, uh, using the screens on my right or my left. Uh, We can throw the first verse up now. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, period, let us know. We'll give you one. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says to the church at uh, Colossae, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen? I ask you a question. I just want to remind you, unless I say differently, every question I ask is real. They're real questions. As you've gotten older, have your desires matured? Have they grown? Yeah. I think some people say, like, oh, no, I just want to live the simple life. But I think most people, it's true that their desires have gotten bigger, they've grown, they've matured. When you were seven, you didn't care whether or not you got a promotion. Three-year-olds don't want to be Instagram famous. They just want a snack. That's all they want. Desires uh, mature. They get more complex. They, have, uh, they, they grow. Um, right now, uh, is Christmas is coming up, and it's uh, when I Christmas shop for my kids. You guys ever do Christmas shopping for your kids? Of course you do, right? Go to the Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree is still an honest establishment. 99 cent store does not actually mean 99 cents. <laughs> Dollar Tree is still a dollar, though. So I go and buy them Dollar Tree toys. Worked. It's great. It's a good tip for you. Don't break the bank. Go to the Dollar Tree. Three-year-olds don't know. Does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> well, uh, my kids are growing out of that phase, unfortunately. Uh, If I take my oldest and my son out to go get a toy at Target, which occasionally I'll take them to Target and I'll say, I'm going to buy you one toy. It's got to be reasonable. And my son will just run around and grab whatever catches his eye. He's in a different state, stage than my daughter is, right? It'll be like a $3 trinket. And I'm like, yes, right? I can pay $3. My daughter is not doing that. She's looking at price tags. (laughs) She knows what has value. Paul um, prays some really big prayers in this section of Colossians. He prays some very big prayers. They look back at what God has done. They look all the way forward to the end of human history. 
He makes a big ask. Um, here's the thing. Uh, we pray about what we care about. You should write that down. We pray about what we care about. We pray about the things that matter to us. So Paul's writing to this small, relatively unimportant church uh, in the ancient world. We don't know much about them except for what we have in, in this letter. They're made up of Jews and Gentiles, people who formally either worship pagan gods or practice Jewish law. Now they're all together in this church, and they've got external pressures, and they've got internal pressures. And Paul begins his letter to them with his pastoral prayer. Last week, Pastor Mike preached through verses 3 through 8. You guys remember that? Where's Mike? That's a good response. Good response. Yes. Yes. I'm going to read it to you again. He prays this way. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul begins to pray for them. He writes down his prayer for them. And he starts by saying, here are all the things that I'm thankful about, the things that God has done for you. He's thankful that the gospel has reached them that they've understood it, that they've received it, that it's changed their lives. He's thankful that they love each other. He's thankful that the power of the gospel and the truth of the gospel has grown them individually. Any of you guys ever been grown individually by the power of the gospel? And it's gone out so that other people can hear it. He's thankful for Epaphras, one example of a person who laid down his life as a minister of the gospel. But here's the truth. If you count yourself a believer, you can be like Epaphras, as you remember Mike saying last week. Paul begins by saying, look at all the great things that God has already done for us. He begins with a prayer of thanksgiving. And then he moves on to supplication, asking that God would do things for the Colossians. And this is where we learn about what is on Paul's heart. This is where we learn about what Paul cares about, what he thinks a lot about, what he's preoccupied with. We pray about what we care about. I saw like a stat recently, a statistic, and I can't remember where I saw it, but it was like they interviewed a bunch of people and asked them, what are the most, what do they pray about, right? Most common answer, number one answer, prayer for provision, get some money. I've prayed that before. Anyone else ever prayed that before? Just me? Okay. Not number one. Amen. Then the next, next most common one was for, like, um, protection. Right? You know what number three was? That your preferred sports team would win. Now, I'm, I'm happy to confess to you that I've never prayed that prayer. Not because I'm better than any of you. I'm not. It's because I don't care about sports at all. I'm a, I'm a little concerned, though, that if I get to heaven and I get to see, like, a list of all my most common prayers, like Spotify does for you at the end of the year, 
you know, and it'll be like, you prayed, like, way too high on the list is going to be a parking spot. <laughs> like, I need one right now. Or a, a prayer of a curse on who stole that parking spot that very clearly belonged to me. Paul could have prayed for all kinds of things for the Colossians. He could have prayed that they would get better facilities, right? Better, better place to meet. doesn't. doesn't mean that it was bad. He could have prayed um, that they would have been protected from persecution and outside pressures, and he doesn't really pray for that. Could have prayed for that, but he doesn't. That would have been bad, but he doesn't pray for that. Uh, he, he actually um, doesn't even pray things like, you know, they, they would grow so much they'd be able to have another church on the other side of Colossae or, or you, know, you know, multiply services or, or whatever. He doesn't pray for those sorts of things. He prays for way, way bigger things than that. Now, I want to pause for a second and say this. There is nothing that concerns you that you are not able to bring before God. No prayer is too small. I want you to hear that. I do want to read Paul's prayers here, though. I want to see their magnificent scope, their unbelievable magnitude. And I want it to shape the way that I pray, and I want it to shape the things that I care about, and I want it to shape the way I live my life. Me. I'm reading this passage this week, and I'm feeling the conviction of the content of Paul's prayer, because Paul goes really big. He, he makes a big ask. He believes that God is more capable than anyone else, more able to do anything than anyone else, and he's not afraid to ask for really big things from God. So we see what he cares about, and we see what he believes God can do. Verse is this, uh, he prays that the Colossians, and by extension us, would prize wisdom. Would prize wisdom. Uh, read with me in verse 9. And so, Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what he asks. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Okay, um, I want to explain what I don't think Paul means here. I think when we think about God's will for our lives, we most often think about the little things that we need to do or the big choices that we need to make, who to marry, where to live, what job to take, we think about God's will for our lives in a particular circumstance. Anybody ever thought about God's will that way? I don't think that's what Paul means here. I think Paul is talking about the full counsel of knowledge of God, all the things that God says about himself and says about us, and where do we find that today? Uh-oh. <laughs> where do we find? Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Let me give you one more chance. Dan is the only one that passed that test. Where do we find about knowledge, found by knowledge of God today? Where do we find about God? The, the Bible. Okay, that's good. Uh, the Bible is where we find out about that. Paul is praying that they would know God, not that they would have supernatural decision-making powers. I want us to understand that what Paul is saying here is, is he's saying that he wants the Colossians to know the will of God, that they would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Filled. To illustrate this, I want to um, give you a, uh, like a little thing to do. 
Uh, if you're ever at like a, a restaurant with someone, and you know how most restaurants have like those like do-it-yourself refill areas, right? Offer someone to get them a refill. Get it, you'll get it for them. Take their cup, give them about a half an inch of whatever they're drinking, bring it back, and see if they're satisfied with that. Filled. Filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Um, what we must understand is that Christianity has, contains content, theological content, assertions, claims about God and what he's done. So first of all, Christianity is not something that we would just kind of get together in a circle and reason out from our own experiences. We might get some things right, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a response to what God has already done through his son at the cross. We've said it a bunch of times. The gospel is not advice. What is it? It's news. It's news about what God has done. The gospel is not advice. It's news. It's news. And, and not only in the Bible do we read about the good news of Jesus Christ, we read particular assertions and truth claims about God and about his people. We don't make it up as we go. Some of us try to make it up as we go. It doesn't always work out for us when we do that. I have heard occasionally people say, you don't need theology, you just need to love God. And that makes me grumpy when I hear that. I don't like hearing that. You know why? That is a theological statement. <laughs> we do need theology. We have a... Uh, like a, a knowledge problem in society. Is that right? We have a wisdom problem in society? Yeah. Do you guys look out at society and think everyone is very wise? Yeah. No? Occasionally you have a wise person here and there, but most of us don't think the society around... And there's a few, few problems. One is uh, people, some people believe that knowledge is uh, kind of a, a relative. It's, it's, it's not objective. It's more about our perspective and, and, uh, and you know, how we see things. Um, I remember my, one of my first classes in college, I was at Long Beach State, and it was a philosophy class, and I didn't know this at the time, found out many years later, that the teacher of that philosophy class was a Christian. Um, and uh, he was explaining how there is objective truth, that, that truth is not relative, it's not something that we just decide on our own. Um, now, that, what he's not saying is that we can always know the whole truth. There's obviously limitations, depending on who we are and where we're at, but he is saying there actually is a truth. Make sense? Like, there are elements of physics that are true that you're not going to understand. That doesn't mean they're not true, <laughs> right? So uh, a guy stood up, and he was uh, in this class, and he was like, yeah, you know, professor, I get it. Uh, you, know, um, you know, math is true, right? There's true and, and false mathematical statements, and that's true for science and, and you know, biology and, and languages and stuff like that. He's like, but obviously for religion, that's not true. And the teacher's like, no, no, one religion's true. And the student, I'm not at Biola, I'm at Long Beach State. The student's like, excuse me, what? And he's like, yeah, well, you know, some people are right about what God wants from them, and a bunch of people are wrong. And the student was like, no, no, that can't be right. And the professor's like, explain to me how that's not right. And the student, like, quietly sits back down and just has an existential crisis for the next 40 minutes of class. <laughs> like, oh, okay, so, so there is one religion that's true, religions that make different claims about the same thing. One's right and one's wrong. Uh-oh. <laughs> the other problem we have, I think, uh, with, with knowledge is the proliferation of knowledge sources. 
Um, you guys confused these days about what's true? <laughs> like, not about central things, but like, there's lots of things that, you know, I feel less certain about. Like, lots of different news sources, lots of different ways of thinking about things, lots of different data sets. You guys know what I'm talking about? You guys feel like we got it figured out as a society, or it's a little, this little bit, lot, lot, lots going on, right? I feel like everyone's got their preferred news media source. Uh, it's a little bit tribalistic. You guys know what I'm talking about? No, is it just me, right? You got like, you know, CNN and Fox and MSNBC and, and Vox and The Atlantic and The New York Times and Al Jazeera and BBC and Russian Twitter bots. Wherever you get your news. Wherever that is. Uh, it's a lot, right? Like whenever I get together with someone to talk about some sort of issue in which we need to have data, I'm like, well, here's my data. And they're like, guess what? Here's my data. And I'm like, oh, no, he's got data too. Confusing. Every time I mention actual news sources, I'll get emails and phone calls the next week and someone saying, are you talking about me and my preferred source of news? <laughs> I'm from all sides, to be clear. I've made a lot of people mad. Uh, and I, I don't want you to wonder or worry. I absolutely am talking about you and your, your news source. <laughs> Especially if it's what mostly animates your frustration and anger if it's what you put your greatest hope in, then I am absolutely 100% talking about you. And I know right now you're thinking, no, no, he's talking about my friend who listens to that media source. No, 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 I'm talking about you. Okay, okay? I'm also talking about me, to be clear. I want to invite you. I want to invite you to return to a source of knowledge that will not let you down and you know is true. It's free. If you don't have a Bible, I will buy you a Bible. There's a hundred people in this room that would also buy you a Bible. Just walk around asking for someone to buy you a Bible. Don't ask for money. But if you want a Bible, ask anyone. You will find someone quickly who will buy you a Bible. Colossians also have a truth problem. I don't think it's quite like ours. I think ours, we live in a particularly intense moment in human history. Uh, they don't have the internet. But they have people getting bad information from bad places, bad knowledge from bad places, and doing bad things with that knowledge. There's some disagreement. There's some false teaching. There's some internal and external pressures. So Paul prays that they would be filled, filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to notice what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray that the idiots who are wrong would stop talking about the things that they're wrong about. He doesn't pray that the liars would be caught out or the heretics would be silenced, that the soothsayers of the age would just disappear. He prays that God's people would know God's will. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He prays that they would simply experience and meditate on the truth of God's word. You guys still with me? Great job. Be filled. Be filled. I'm not saying that there isn't truth out there. I certainly think there is. And I think there's truth out there in a great multitude of ways, in a huge variety of fields, and I think most of us are right about some things and wrong about some things. I'm saying the most fundamental, true thing that you can rely on will not let you down. I want to invite you to come back to it. Because it's life-giving. 
I'm encountering people all the time these days that are just falling apart, overwhelmed, animated by angers I didn't know anyone had until these last couple years. I want to invite you, come back. It will relieve you. It will unburden you. I've been trying to read my Bible just to read my Bible. And I know that sounds like a weird thing. What I mean is I read the Bible a lot. Oftentimes, I will read the Bible because in a few days, I have to stand in front of a bunch of people and talk about the Bible. You know what I mean? Whether it's here or somewhere else. And so I've been trying to uh, strengthen my commitment to just read the Bible, right? Don't try and sneak in a little bit of Colossians. You're going to have all day to do that on Thursday. Read something else. Every time I do, it is life-giving. Paul's like, steep in it, enjoy it, brew in it, right? The Word actually does something to you. I still believe that. Look at how the Bible talks about itself. The psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. (laughs) You might read, like, the law of the Lord is perfect. It gives you knowledge. That's what he says. He says it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I don't want you to answer this question. Normally I want you to answer questions. Don't answer this one. Or, or, sorry, answer it in your own hearts. How do you think about your Bible? Do you think about it like it's an obligation? Something to check off your list? Do you think about it like it's a weapon to dispense with your ideological enemies? Do you think about it like it's a tool? Do you think about it like it's a relic, like you don't really need it? Most often, when we think about the Word of God, we should think about it in terms of something to be enjoyed. Like a good meal. Something that gives us life, a rich treasure trove of blessing that cannot be exhausted. Paul desires that the Colossians would know or be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. May that be our prayer as well. Amen? Amen. He also desires for them to pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Did you read these words with me, beginning in verse 10? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with what? Joy. Joy. Okay, so let me just, for a minute here, when you learn to read the Bible and study it, you're always looking for these phrases that show how relationship, how how different um, uh, 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 passages relate to each other. Paul says he wants to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as... He is explaining what the purpose of that knowledge is. Uh, so if you are the sort of person that writes in your Bible, if you live that chaotic life, underline so as there. 
to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's saying, use your knowledge for good and not for evil. <laughs> Anybody ever seen knowledge used for evil? Anybody ever used knowledge for evil? <laughs> Paul's saying that learning is always going to lead to a particular type of living. Knowledge is meant to form you into the sort of person who lives a life that is worthy, that bears good fruit. Good fruit always affects other people. Is that right? Like, love is a thing that you do for others. Patience is a thing that you do for others. Kindness is a thing that you do for others. I just wanted to like understand why Paul even has to say this. Uh, I don't know a lot about the armed forces, so forgive me if I describe things wrong. I have multiple times spoken to Air Force guys and said they were in the Army and they were ready to lose their minds over it. I'm very sorry. I'm still learning. But imagine a small troop of army guys. One of them is a medic. What does the medic have with him? First aid kit. He's got bandages. He's got medicine. He's got other things related to medicine. And he's supposed to use that when other members of his troop get hurt. Troop? Brigade? Squad. Should have been here Saturday. Yeah. Other members of his squad get hurt. What if he got it into his head that everything he was carrying was just for him? <laughs> like, I got all these bandages in case I get sick. You guys are on your own. <laughs> like, whatever knowledge you receive, uh, if it is thought of as a thing that's meant only for you, you renew, using your knowledge for evil and not for good, your knowledge should shape you. Is that right? It should shape you. Paul says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want to tell you some things that are not an indication of whether or not you are walking worthy. Because I meet with people, and one of the things they ask me is, like, how do I know how I'm doing as a Christian? <laughs> Anybody ever wonder that question? How am I doing? Uh, here's some things that are no indication about how you're doing. Uh, how often you experience a spiritual high in worship is not an indication of how well you're doing as a Christian. I think they're good things. I don't think they're an indication of how well you're doing as a Christian. Whether or not you found that perfect place for you in ministry is not an indication of how well you're doing as a Christian. Whether you're in a place of leadership in ministry is not an indication of how well you are doing as a Christian. Do you know uh, the standard, the, the test that you can apply to your own heart that Scripture gives over and over and over and over again? Obedience. Are you obeying the Lord you profess to believe in? Paul is saying that the Lord might empower his people through the knowledge that they've arrived at, to live lives worthy of the Lord. And that is expressed through obedience. Now, I want to be really, really clear here, if possible. Obedience, your obedience, does not save you. It does not save you. You are not saved on your own merit, your own righteousness, your own obedience, your own good works. 
You're saved through the righteousness and obedience of Jesus who lived and died in your place. I want you to sit on that for a second. It's very, very important. What I am not saying to you is you obeying God makes you acceptable before God. First, you were made acceptable through the obedience of Jesus, and then you obey. And whether or not you obey is an indication of the state of your heart. Because if you have a new heart, it will lead to a new life. I want to show you this famous passage. Many of you have it memorized. Any Awanas people out there? Like two? Cool. All right, so Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We're going to just start with 2, 8, and 9. We know this one, right? For by grace you have been saved through what? We know that one. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? Gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Just pause there for a second. Don't go on to 10. We all know this passage. We read it and we are appropriately comforted with the power of God to save those he loves. How are we saved? Through grace. By what? Faith. And, and who gave it to us? God gave it to us. It was a gift. You don't buy yourselves gifts. Some people do. It's a little sad. Make relationships so that people can give you gifts. God gives you the gift of salvation. You don't buy it. He bought it. We know that one. We're comfortable. As Protestants, we really crush this portion of Scripture. We're like, yes. And then Paul continues. Don't stop at 9. He says in verse 10, For we have been, we are his, come on. (laughs) Getting trolled here. Okay. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I just want you to think about this when you wake up in the morning. When you wake up in the morning, you can ask, what good things has God already planned for me to do today? Like, be on the lookout for them. Like, he's saying, before you were born, before the world was created, before the 20th century and modern society, God planned, prepared good works for you to do. You specifically. You can wake up in the morning and say, God, show me the things you prepared for me to do today, the good things that do not save me but glorify the one who did save me. So how, how, do we, how do we walk in these good works that he's prepared ahead of time? How do we live lives that are worthy, that are fruitful? Has anyone here ever struggled with sin? <laughs> sometimes extremely, sometimes not so extremely. Some people uh, have had easier paths with less temptation. Some people have had harder paths with more temptation. Certainly there are people here today who are losing battles to sin more often than they feel comfortable with. I've been there. I'm sure some of you right now are there. We say, we're weak. Anybody ever felt weak? Good. God knows you're weak. That's why he helps you. Look at what it says. It says, um, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. And you're like, in the morning or at night, you say, did I bear fruit in every good work? Oof. And he says, being strengthened, a thing that happens to you, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Think about uh, the mighty hand of God, which was stretched out against Pharaoh on behalf of the Israelites and splits a sea so that a multitude of millions can walk through on dry ground. That hand of God. The hand of God that sent fire down on the altar that Elijah had built and consumed it to verify that Elijah was his prophet and put to shame the prophets of Baal. The God who rolled the stone away and raised his son back to life. That same mighty hand of God not only saves you, but makes you more like him over time. The word we use in theological circles is sanctification, being made more holy. Uh, We believe that being saved, justification, is an act of God. Sanctification is also what God starts, he finishes. You will feel weak. You will not always do well. Your goal is not to clench your fists And grit through it, it is to trust more fully and more regularly and more openly on the power of God to change your life. God helps you have big prayers. Probably people here right now that feel utterly trapped in sin. Believe that God can deliver you and pray that he will. And, this is the hard part, confess your sin to a brother or sister in Christ. Someone was hoping, someone this morning was hoping I wouldn't say that part. If that's you, confess your sin. Then Paul goes on. He talks about sin. He's talking about doing good works. And he's talking about that we would be strengthened in all endurance and and patience. And um, I was trying to think a lot about like this endurance and patience thing and how all the phrases relate to each other. Paul jumps all over the place. He, He talks about, you know, knowledge of God and being filled, and he talks about good works and being worthy, then he jumps back to knowledge and he goes to patience and endurance. It's a lot. I do think they're all related. Uh, But just let me ask you a question. Uh, What sorts of things do you endure? What sorts of things do you endure? Bad, someone said people. Bad things, right? You endure suffering. You endure hardship. You endure really long sermons. You endure all kinds of things. You don't endure your favorite meal. You endure a diet, right? You don't endure things that you like. So what is Paul talking about here? He's, He's imagining endurance in the face of things that are not going well. He's just talked about living a life that is worthy. And I think uh, what he's laying out for us is um, so much of sin, I don't think all sin, but so much of sin is a response to suffering or tragedy in our lives. Because something bad happens to us, and we think we deserve a break from holiness. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that suffering is ever an excuse for sin. But I think it often leads to it. 
when you suffer, when things are not going well for you, I think you're given two paths. To appease the flesh and sin or to endure. Are you with me? Does that logic make sense to you? Think of what Paul is saying here. And he says, not just endure, but endure with what? With patience, and then also with what? Joy. Joy. With joy. Joy and suffering. (laughs) He says, to endure with all patience, with joy. With joy. How does one endure with joy? You don't tend to endure things that you like. I think Paul's addressing uh, probably Stoicism here. Made a weird comeback, Stoicism. Made a weird comeback recently in in popular books. Um, I'm going to summarize it for you. Uh, Stoicism 101 is don't ever love anything so you can't get hurt. Okay? I'm sure if there was a philosopher of Stoicism, he would be mad that that was not nuanced enough. But he's not here. That's the way to think about Stoicism. Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not how Christians do things. That's not how Christians do things. We don't protect ourselves by ignoring the things that we love. We protect ourselves by truly loving and hoping in and taking joy in those things that matter the most, that can't be taken away from us. You have a king who is greater than any earthly ruler. You have a counselor who is closer than any friend. You have a redeemer who is richer and more generous than anyone you've ever met in your entire life. Good things can be taken from you as believers. Good things. Yet you could still have joy because your joy is in the right object. doesn't matter how deep and dark the valley is, the valley will pass, Jesus remains. Endure with joy. Lastly, Paul desires that the Colossians would practice thanksgiving. We read in verses 12 through 14, uh, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Are you good at being thankful? (laughs) Like, I don't know. My office is uh, right next to Pastor Justin's office, and so I will wander over there all the time. He can lock it. I got a key. <laughs> so I'll wander over there. And I'll lay down on his couch. And I will offer up to him little petty complaints about all kinds of different things. Not bad gossip. Just like, you know, I'm annoyed because I almost ran out of gas and had to stop at a gas station that, you know, had a 50-cent charge on my credit card. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Am I the only one that has petty complaints? <laughs> little petty complaints, you know? Frustrated about this or that or this or that. And, uh... You know, after doing that for a little while, Justin has something to say to me, and he says in a sweet and melodic voice that you guys are all very familiar with, 
he says, Andrew, tell me something that you're happy about. Like, <laughs> like getting shot. Got to limp back to my office. What is he saying? He's saying, man, you should practice gratefulness. You should practice gratefulness. Practice thankfulness, like true, actual thankfulness. Not like thank you or someone held a door for you. You're like, oh, thank you as you run to the door. Like true meditation on what it is that God has done for you. And profession, uh, professing with your life what it is that God will do for you. Uh, and I, remember, I want you to remember, Paul, his prayer is big. His prayer is big. He thanks God for big things. Sometimes I'll be driving home at night, and I'll stop at 7-Eleven. Not just for me, also for my kids. I'm doing it for my kids. And I'll get them little little candy airheads. You guys know those? I bring those things home, and I am the king. They, like, lose their mind. They're like, thank you, Dad. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, right? Like, you know, i got, like, a strawberry and a raspberry. They're, they're so incredibly thankful. Not one time have they thanked me for paying rent. <laughs> you guys are laughing, but I hope you see the point I'm trying to make here. I am quick to thank God when he heals me of illness, and I should thank God for those things. I am quick to thank God when I need financial provision, and I should thank God for that. Financial, I, I, I'm quick to thank God when he resolves relational issues I have with someone. We are quick to pray those prayers, and remember, you can bring anything before God, but what greater things could we thank God for than what Paul lists here? Paul says that we, I think by extension, would be thankful for the inheritance that we have. Eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, the the king of light, the presence of the Lord forever. (laughs) Like, God, thank you for getting me that promotion. Thank you for the inheritance that no one could ever take away from me ever. That I can barely even set my eyes on it because it is so big It is of such great size and glory, my brain can't fully comprehend what it is. The fact that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us over into the kingdom of the son that he loves. We were dead and he made us alive. We were enemies and he made us friends. It wasn't an escape from the domain of darkness. It was a rescue all of these things, all of these things that, that Paul talks about here, notice they're things that God does. He qualified you for the inheritance. He rescued you and transferred you. And in Jesus, his beloved son, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I, I want to make prayers that look a lot less like me thanking God for little candies. It's an inexhaustible well of blessing. The power of the gospel to save. An absolute, inexhaustible well. I want my prayers to reflect. Because I pray about what I care about. Do you see that? Let's pray.
Father, we praise your name for all the many small things you've done for us. But Father, we also thank you for the big things. The the death of your son on the cross and his resurrection, which has made new life possible for us, redemption of sins, forgiveness of sins, debts paid that we could never pay. We thank you for the fact that you've sent the Spirit to be with us now and to unify us as one body, to illuminate the truth to us. We thank you uh, that we have a future inheritance that is far greater than anything that we could imagine right now. We believe that you are a good God who is capable of anything. And I pray as we seek to glorify you this week through our words and our deeds that uh, those things would be shaped by your greatness and by our trust in the fact that you love us and desire our good, even in suffering, even in opposition. Pray bless us today as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.